Thanks again, Karen. And uh, if you have your Bibles open there at Matthew 5, please keep them open uh, as we have a look at that passage together. Uh, Matthew 17, uh, 5, 17 to 48, we're looking at this morning, the whole section. Let's pray as we prepare to look at God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you that in your word, the Bible, you teach us about yourself, you teach us uh, who you are and, and how we are to live as your people. Help us as we read this morning to uh, grow in our understanding of you and our understanding uh, of, of how it is we live and bring glory to you in our lives. Uh, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got a big poster of Batman in my study. Uh, I'm a bit of a, it's a really big poster. I'm a bit of a superhero fan, which you may know by now. And my favourite superhero is definitely Batman. Uh, my poster has these words on it. Always be yourself. Unless you can be Batman, then always be Batman. Uh, <laughs> the reason I like Batman so much is that uh, with the right training, uh, enough time and enough money, anyone can conceivably be Batman. If you ever think about it, to be the Flash, you've got to hit by, get hit by a bolt of lightning. Uh, to be Spider-Man, you've got to get bitten by a radioactive spider. To be the Hulk, you've got to get washed in gamma radiation. Those all sound like pretty dangerous ways to become superheroes. Uh, but to be Batman, well, you just need years of training in multiple martial arts and the money to suit up and kit yourself out with the latest crime-fighting gear. Uh, he's just a guy who's really rich and great at ninjutsu. Uh, now, I'm willing to admit that it's a very slim possibility uh, that I could be Batman uh, coming across... The money for all of those gadgets could be quite difficult. Uh, I might even be a bit beyond it at 47 years of age. I have been wondering whether I should start training Daniel now. Uh, he's only 12. Um, <laughs> but no, I think becoming Batman's a bit out of my reach, I think, but theoretically possible. Uh, in today's passage from the Sermon on the Mount, we see something that's even harder to achieve than becoming Batman. In fact, it's it's something that is entirely impossible by our own strength to achieve, but something which many people do try to achieve under their own strength. Uh, and that thing is achieving God's standard for entering the kingdom of heaven. Uh, as we read from verse 17 of chapter 5 and onwards, we move into the body of the Sermon on the Mount, and we see the continuing emphasis on the kingdom of heaven. Uh, last week we saw how Jesus described his disciples, described how you, how you will live and what it will be like uh, to be members of his kingdom. Uh, this will continue to be a central theme. And we see Jesus teaching on how, his, how, how this kingdom, kingdom of heaven, relates to uh, the Old Testament. To this point in time, God's people knew only the Old Testament scriptures. That was their Bible. That was Jesus' Bible. Uh, and if Jesus is the king God promised to send all throughout the Old Testament, well, how will this change the way that his people uh, relate to him, if, if at all? You know, what, what will Jesus' arrival finally mean for those who wish to be part of God's kingdom, uh, for those who already consider themselves part of it? Jesus uses the term uh, law, the law and the prophets, uh, a common way of referring to the Old Testament scriptures at the time. 
And he tells his hearers that he has come to fulfill these scriptures. Uh, Read the first two verses with me there in Matthew 5, Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Uh, Jesus makes this all-encompassing statement. He's come to fulfill the law and the prophets, not to abolish them. Uh, The law was a a big deal, Uh, particularly uh, Jewish people living at the time. Their understanding of the law uh, had developed over time to the point that uh, obedience to the law uh, was paramount to pleasing God, to being part of his kingdom, to be one of his people. Um, and obedience to the law is consistently commanded in the scriptures. They're quite right to think that they ought to obey the law, and yet his, Israel's history is a very poor history when it comes to obeying God. Uh, add to that a problematic interpretation and application of, of much of the Old Testament. Over hundreds of years, the law had been added to or interpreted by the rulers and the Pharisees, uh, adding minutia to the law so that... Uh, At every step of your life, you could be sure you were obeying it. Uh, And they did this to the extent that it had become just a massive burden uh, to follow. It created great doubt in the minds of many about whether they could even be considered good enough for God. Uh, Those people might have been quite sad to hear that the law must still be obeyed. Uh, Is nothing changing with the arrival of the king? Well, verses 19 and 20, read with me there. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Obedience and righteousness are requirements for entry to the kingdom. Uh, Many people's hearts must have sunk when Jesus said that your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these are the most righteous and fastidious uh, Jewish people around. No one else could dedicate their time uh, to law-keeping like they could. It was an insurmountable standard for most people, a standard that would seem to rule them out of the kingdom of heaven. But... Notice, too, that the Pharisees and teachers of the law are ruled out, uh, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, Jesus says. Uh, So even even they are not good enough for God. Uh, At the end of this chapter, Jesus rounds out this section of teaching in verse 48 when he says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfection is the requirement or entry to the kingdom of heaven. What hope does anyone have? (laughs) This is why it's good news that Jesus has come. Uh, For Jesus to fulfill the law and the prophets means that all of Scripture, uh, all of the the moral and ethical commands gave to his people, uh, all of the commands about Israel's life and how they relate to each other, all of Israel's history, the the sacrificial system, all of the prophetic writings about Israel and and God's plan of salvation, all of Scripture 
points forward to Jesus. All of Scripture is leading to him and is fulfilled in him. Uh, I mentioned earlier, obedience to the Lord commanded in the Old Testament. God demands complete obedience and allegiance from his people. But what is also taught throughout the Old Testament is that, well, God knows his people will never fully obey the law. They'll always fall short. They'll always receive the consequences for disobedience. And so in the scriptures, God also promises to provide a saviour. He promises to give his people a new heart and a new spirit because they can't obey him in their own strength. Uh, This is what is provided by Jesus as he comes to fulfil the law. Uh, The purpose of all the Old Testament scriptures, the purpose of the law is to show us that we can't obey God on our own. We simply can't do it and they're there to lead us to Jesus, to show us our need for Jesus. Uh, He in turn, in the work uh, that he will do in his life, death and resurrection, will satisfy the requirements of the law on behalf of his people. Jesus will bring to fruition everything that the law and the prophets point to. And in his perfect obedience as the Son of God, he will accomplish the righteousness required for all who trust in him. Uh, The Apostle Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, from verses 19 to 22. Uh, This will be on the screen as well for you. Romans 3, 19 to 22. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Where do we find the righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees? How can we be considered perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect? By trusting Jesus. Uh, This is the purpose and goal and aim of the law, to highlight our sin and point us to Jesus as the solution. By his sacrifice for sin on our behalf, uh, Jesus fulfills the law. So Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Uh, And it's his obedience that is counted in our favour when we believe in him. But does this mean, then, that we don't have to really Try that hard to live in obedience to God. Well, not at all. (laughs) From what we've read so far and what we will read, we see that there's a way of life that we're commanded to aspire to. There's a way of living that brings glory to God and disciples of Jesus will seek to live that way as people who belong to him. God's kingdom simply by following a long list of rules. Uh, This is what the Jewish people often tried to do in Jesus' day, adding rule after rule and reinterpreting God's laws to to make sure that they were right with him by their rule-keeping efforts. But the point of this passage is that making such rules defeats the purpose and no matter how hard we'll try, we'll always fall short. Jesus' teaching of the law shows that loving and obeying God, well, it means a whole lot more than just making sure the letter of the law is not infringed Um, Jesus goes on to give a number of examples that demonstrate how impossible it is for any person at any time 
to obtain the kind of righteousness we need to please God in our own strength. Uh, this is a message Jesus here is really needed to hear, and it's a message Christians need to hear today too. Uh, we won't look at every one of Jesus' examples in depth. We've looked at some specific topics here already this year. We've looked at uh, anger and we've looked at loving your enemies uh, earlier in the year. Um, but we'll go through the examples and we'll see how Jesus is teaching the law and what his approach teaches us. Uh, as Jesus teaches on the topics that follow, many of the statements that he makes would have been familiar to his hearers, sometimes because they're straight from the Scriptures, quotes from the Ten Commandments or other places, and sometimes because they were sayings and rules that had been added, uh, new interpretations of God's law made over time by the Jewish people. Uh, but whatever their understanding of the law, in his teaching here, Jesus puts his stamp of authority on it. He is the one who fulfills the law. Uh, and we see this repeated. Uh, we see this by his repeated use of this phrase, you have heard it said, but I tell you. <laughs> At the start of each little section, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Uh, so let's look at the different topics Jesus teaches on. Uh, first, Jesus pretty directly repeats the command not to murder from the Ten Commandments. It's a familiar command, well known to any Jewish person, God is opposed to murder. And, and look, most people could happily tick that one off. I've never killed anyone. So far, so good. <laughs> but Jesus shows the command is about much more than just shedding blood. Uh, next two verses there, Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. Read them with me. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Racha, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus shows here that the heart attitude of anger is the great problem. This was Cain's problem before he murdered his brother Abel. Uh, and if we have this anger, if we express this anger, anger towards our fellow man, whether you go through with the act or not, we're liable for the same judgment as a murderer. Uh, Jesus describes some of the immediate consequences for our anger and he commands reconciliation. Reconcile with your adversary before your anger leads to dire consequences. That's, uh, if you were at the women's teaching event yesterday, you'll know all about that. You'd be great at reconciliation, conflict and, and peacemaking. That sounds like it was a great event. Um, Jesus teaching on anger. If you're even angry with another person, you're liable uh, for the same judgment as a murderer. This teaching, it puts anyone who's ever lived in a pretty precarious position, doesn't it? Even if some of our anger could be considered righteous anger, anger at sin or evil, well, mostly our anger is, is pretty self-serving and, and vengeful. Uh, and on the very first point, we find that we all fall short of God's righteousness here. The second topic teaches on uh, the, the similar problem. Uh, Jesus doesn't distinguish uh, on this, this second topic between the attitude of the heart and the thing itself. The, the desire and the act are the same when it comes to the spirit of the law. And this next topic is straight from the Ten Commandments as well. Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, many people uh, could happily say, well, I've never cheated on my spouse. I've never slept with the husband, anyone else's husband or wife. But again, Jesus shows that meeting God's standard is much more difficult than that. If the underlying lust that leads to adultery is there, well, then the sin is the same. Sin comes from the heart. It's not simply the things we do. So the punishment for that sin will be the same. The guilt for that sin is the same. Uh, and very few people could say that they're not guilty at this point, looking lustfully at, at others at times. Jesus urges his hearers uh, to remove the things that, that cause that temptation and that sin. Matthew 5, verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, Jesus is speaking metaphorically here uh, about removing the things which lead us to sin, which cause temptation in our lives. I think I could say he's speaking metaphorically because... Well, otherwise, he would have said to gouge out both eyes. When you look lusty, gouging out just one eye. Uh, remove the thing in your life that leads to sin, Jesus is saying. Next, Jesus addresses a common understanding of divorce at the time. Uh, chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Follow along there with me. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now this statement that Jesus uh, repeats here is a simplification of a particular mosaic law in Deuteronomy 24. The Jews at the time had taken a specific rule given by God and turned it into a license to well, divorce your wife for nearly any reason. Uh, some men apparently uh, at the time justifying divorce for reasons as trivial as their wife burning the dinner. Uh, that was a good enough reason and you could give her a certificate and she had to go. Of course, in the process, making her a victim, uh, mistreated by her husband and unable to remarry unless she wanted to be guilty of adultery. Basically, some men took this rule as a way to justify their own selfishness clear themselves of guilt when they discarded a wife who displeased them. Jesus takes the opportunity to correct their thinking and to restate God's design for marriage. Only under very limited circumstances should divorce be considered. Again, making righteousness before God much, much harder than they imagine. Now, the next topic Jesus covers is one found clearly in the Old Testament. The Old Testament forbids people from breaking vows, uh, breaking a vow they've made, either a vow to God or a vow in God's name, uh, mentioned a number of times uh, in the Old Testament laws. And just like we often do today, well, people in Jesus' day often looked for ways to make their word less binding in case they wanted to go back on it later. Uh, so Jesus says, look, no more vows and playing with vows. Simply stick to your word and do what you'll say you'll do. Uh, 
verses 33 to 37 there. Again, you have heard it said that it, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair black or white. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. James paraphrases Jesus here in his letter when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Uh, Honesty is the policy. (laughs) Follow your word. Now the next topic Jesus addresses is again a law found in the Old Testament. At a number of points we we see the eye for an eye principle. Uh, It's a principle intended to curb the over-exaction of revenge. Uh, Human tendency is to inflict greater harm than was inflicted on us when we seek revenge. And this just leads to a a spiralling cycle of violence. God knows this, and so he commanded his people that the person who inflicts harm can only be punished to the same degree. Uh, Jesus takes this law uh, here in, in Matthew 5, and he makes really any kind of revenge... Uh, out of the question. Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus is talking here about those kind of personal hurts and insults that we so often uh, just, just want to get back at someone for. Uh, how often have you wanted to get someone back for something they've, they've done to you? When you suffer some personal insult or hurt, the temptation to get that recompense and, and to get it, whatever the cost to them, even if it means hurting them in the process, we can often act that way. As human beings, but Jesus is teaching us to end the cycle of violence and hurt. He's, he's teaching here that, that we ought to be willing to give up our own rights, to, to sacrifice our, our pride, to sacrifice our rights. It, if the original law was about limiting violence, well, practicing the righteousness that Jesus describes here has the potential to end violence in a situation altogether. As his people accept wrong done to them without complaint rather than seeking revenge. Uh, Jesus will give his followers the greatest example of this when he submits to death on a cross, not retaliating or defending himself, but giving his life so that one day all violence can finally end. Again, uh, an impossible standard to meet all the time for fallible human beings. Uh, The final topic Jesus addresses is directly related to that last one, and we've looked at this earlier in the year, the teaching of Jesus to love your enemies. Verses 43 to 45, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. 
He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Again, Jesus repeats a statement common at the time, half of which is found in the Old Testament scriptures, love your neighbour, but the other half of which, hate your enemy, (laughs) was added later, uh, really just to make the first part of the command easier to obey. Uh, that, That command to hate your enemy is not found in the old scriptures, that's not a command God has given his people, uh, but it's easier to obey the command to love your neighbour when you define neighbour narrowly enough, which the Jews did at the time. Uh, if you define neighbour as just those uh, who are part of your family or tribe or clan, uh, to exclude those outside your national or family ties, well, it's much easier to obey the command to, to love your neighbour. Uh, as long as you're allowed to hate your enemy. (laughs) But Jesus says that's not good enough. In fact, you must love your enemies. Again, this teaching is impossible for fallible humans to obey all the time. We just can't do it, can we? How much time do you spend even praying for your enemies, let alone doing anything else to show that you love them? How much time? Not much, I'm guessing. I don't. (laughs) should, but I don't. Yet loving your enemies is the way to show that you are a child of God because that's exactly how God treats his enemies. Jesus died for us. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, while we were his enemies, while we were still sinners, so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. By the time Jesus comes to the end of this part of his sermon, the people must almost be anticipating what he says next. You you can't read this and, and think anything but, well, There's no way I can do this. Uh, By the time Jesus gets to this point, the crowd must be thinking, what, is he telling us to be perfect or something? And indeed he is. Uh, Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard God requires for entry to his kingdom. Uh, That's what Jesus said this was about 28 verses ago. The standard God requires for entry to his kingdom is perfection. And that, that is ultimately only achievable by God. That's not to say that we don't have to follow Jesus' teaching here. We don't just take all these commands from Jesus and put them to one side. Even while knowing we'll never achieve perfection, knowing that we will fail again and again because of the sin we're still affected by, we are still to strive to live a life pleasing to God. A life that shows we are indeed his children. A life that shows we're following his example. And that's the point. We can't be perfect. We can't be God, but we don't have to be. We might conceivably be able to be Batman uh, with the training time, the, the money. But we can't be God. We can't be Jesus. Uh, to try to would be denying what the Old Testament law teaches us which is that because of sin, we can't obey God on our own. Because of our sin, we can't obey God on our own. Jesus is teaching against self-righteousness. The Jewish justify themselves before God, finding roundabout ways of proving their obedience when they really had to learn that they simply couldn't do it without Jesus. Couldn't do it without God. What we need more than anything is God's righteousness. That's the only thing that can save us from sin. That's the only thing that 
allows us to enter God's kingdom, and that's only available by trusting in Jesus. That's something Jesus' hearers uh, would come to see very clearly in just a few short years' time. Uh, and that's something we already know as people who follow Jesus. Uh, so let's never think that we can be good enough for God on our own. Uh, let's never think our salvation depends in any way on our good deeds. Uh, let's continually rely on Jesus' work on our behalf to be right before God. Uh, and let's live in thankfulness and gratitude, glorifying God as we, uh, as we live in these bodies, obeying him to the best extent we can, out of gratitude and thankfulness for Jesus' obedience on our behalf. Let's ask God to help us to do this. Let's pray. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are a holy and righteous God. We praise you for your son Jesus, that in your love, in your faithfulness, you sent your son Jesus to be our saviour. We praise you and thank you that in Jesus' death on the cross, he has paid the penalty for sin, that Jesus, in his perfect obedience to you, has made the sacrifice necessary for sin to be paid for and for forgiveness to be offered to those who trust in him. We praise you for this, Lord. And we praise you that in his resurrection from death, Jesus has proved his victory and given all who follow him the hope of eternal life in heaven. We thank you that through faith in him, we may be part of your kingdom. Help us to live lives which uh, reflect our, our gratitude for all you've done for us. Help us to live lives uh, which bear witness to your goodness to us. Help us to seek uh, to imitate your son as best we can as we seek to show uh, love uh, to those around us, as we seek to show love to each other, and as we seek to live in a way that brings glory to the one who has saved us from sin and death. Help us to do this, Lord, that you might be glorified, and we ask it all, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.